John 13, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around His waist. Then He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around Him. He came to Simon Peter who said to Him, Lord, do You wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What am I doing, or what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Jesus said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. You've got to love Peter in that moment, right? Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Peter, you don't need a bath. The feet are fine. But not every one of you. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Verse 11, For he knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one who I... who who, excuse me, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. I will tell you, you know, I mentioned a uh, week before last that as we get into this section of, of the book of John, everything is in the last week. It's what we call Passion Week. Everything is leading up to the cross, and, and it's, it's very palpable to me. I don't know about to you. But when I come to this particular section of John, uh, there's just a, there's a sense in which you actually feel the weight of what was going on within Jesus and within the disciples. Uh, there's, a, there's an extra layer for me. You know, you never quite, no matter how many times uh, you teach or you preach or you do a class or whatever, uh, you never fully get over nervousness, apprehension of the weight of the importance of what you're doing. Uh, but there's, in, this, in these chapters, I will tell you, there's like an extra layer of weight and apprehension because this is what everything has been leading up to in the Gospel of John, in the life and the ministry of Christ. But bigger than that, it's what everything has been leading up to since before the creation of the world. Paul, in his letters, almost all of them, mentions that before the creation of the world, the Lord saw our need and already planned and worked our salvation from before our creation. It's a wild concept. Our little finite minds have a hard time with it. But it's, going back to what Steve just showed you, it's true. And you can use either side of the card. That's quite a trick, wasn't it? 
That's the best true-false test you ever had, I think, you know. True, true. But we, uh, we have been the object of God's desire and the object of His love from before time even began. There's just an extra sense of, of importance and weight. Jesus, uh, and, and John points it out consistently in His Gospel, Jesus also had on His mind this idea of there being a time when, when He would give His life as a ransom for many. Mark 10.45 says, The Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many. And this time is starting to come. Earlier in the book of John, you have uh, at the wedding at Cana, it's probably the first time it's mentioned in John chapter 2 and verse 4. He says that my time has not yet come. That's his answer when Mary says, you know, you've got to do something about this. We're running out of wine. It's kind of the oddest miracle, right? Uh, usually, you know, if it was now, it would be sweet tea. That would be our problem. Because my house would be coffee. The only difference is we don't run out of coffee at my house. Running out of coffee means the one next to the coffee maker is empty and we'll have to do backup on the Keurig. You see what I'm saying? If the coffee maker breaks, you have four different kinds of manual ways of making it. Somehow or another, coffee happening, okay? But the wedding at Cana, they were out of wine, okay? Maybe that's closer to being out of bacon. Maybe that's the way that works. And uh, Mary comes to Jesus and says, you've got to do something about this. And he says, my time hasn't yet come. It's not time. It's, it's just, it's, it's not. This is not the way this was supposed to start. And what does Mary do? She says, you know, do whatever he wants. Ignores him. And it happens, he turns water to wine, and you know the rest of the story. But what he's saying is, it's not yet time. And that, at that point, you're saying, what does he mean? Just this is not according to plan? What, what does he mean by that? That's kind of the introduction to the idea. Later he says it again at the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7. And it's interesting because at the Feast of Tabernacles, that's a feast that celebrated the harvest for Jerusalem. Every year they would celebrate the harvest, they would bring these things in. And this is where Jesus tells them that, uh, that He is the bread of life. He gives them ideas of things like that to, to show that you know the real harvest is me and comes through me and it, just all of the symbolism and everything else. He talks about being living water as they would have a ceremony where they would pour all of this water out and it was symbolic and we won't get into all of that. But even then he said, but my time's not come yet. It's still not, not yet time. His hour had not yet come. It says it again in chapter 8 and 20 where he's just teaching and having some back and forth with uh, Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law and the crowds that were there. And there again it says, but his time had not yet come. It wasn't time for him to give his life. It wasn't time for them to fully understand all that he was about. And so still he was kind of playing his cards close to the vest. And you just see this theme repeated over and over again until what was in chapter 12. And we didn't spend a lot of time on the triumphal entry when we were in chapter 12. We looked more at his time at Bethany. But about a year ago we did. Uh, we looked at the triumphal entry. And there the language changes. There it says that it is his time. It, that the hour has come. And now everything is starting to happen. Well, why would he suddenly switch at the triumphal entry to, okay, now it's time. Because at the triumphal entry, there's something very symbolic going on. Not only is he coming in on the colt of a donkey, which meant that he was a king. Not only are they shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means God save us. And he is there 
to quite literally save them. Not only are all of these things going on, but it is also the day of presentation when you would bring your sacrificial lamb to Jerusalem to begin the process for all of Passover so that that lamb could be inspected and your sacrifice inspected. So it's a time where they're actually starting to look all of that over and who comes in but the sacrificial lamb. His time has come to present himself at Jerusalem to shed his blood and be the sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. The hour has, at this point, come. If it came at the triumphal entry, then by the time he gets to his celebration of the Passover meal with the disciples, the twelve, then by that time the air is thick, isn't it, with what's going on. And from chapter 13 through 17, Jesus starts to to let them in on much more about what it means that the time has come. He understands. John 13 began, when we read it just a few moments ago, with this statement. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. It was time. And you just could could have cut the air with a knife. It was so thick because he knew what was about to happen. And they didn't fully understand, but he did. So, if he knows that his time is almost up and that it's, it's going to be a moment of suffering, a moment of dread and all of these things, what does that mean? Well, this is what he knew first. He knew that his betrayal was coming, and he talks about that. When he says, you know, I'm not talking about all of you, you know, but there is one who is about to, to dip his bread in the bowl and he's the one who is going to betray me. There is someone here who is going to turn me over. He, he knew his betrayal was not hours or days or weeks away. It was time. It was about to happen, literally about to happen. There is in this picture, and I, didn't, I had to crop it, but if I could show you the full picture, all the way to that side over there is a doorway with a shadow. It's Judah's shadow as he leaves the supper to go and betray Jesus. It's really a pretty cool image. Would have been nice if I shared it with you, right? Google it. The, uh, but but it's, it's, it's that soon. So that would be in moments. His suffering on the cross is just hours away. His trial will be the next night. And, and all of that stuff is going to happen. His burial, his death, all of it. It's just the next, it's just the next day. All these things coming into their, their fulfillment. He knows that. Just hours. Even the resurrection to come is just days away. Even the ascension, 40 days after the resurrection, is just days away. Everything is now. And Jesus is telling them it's all now. And when we have something really important coming up, what do we start to do? Well, it depends a little bit on our personality, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. yes, it does. Some people... Fully laid back. It doesn't matter what's about to happen. You know, they, they got that lazy boy in full recline because that's their personality, you know. Meanwhile, their wife doing an Edith Bunker is running around the house. Oh, watching! And all that stuff, you know, freaking out because that's her personality. But in some way or another, people are always, you know, bleh. some of you are, are rather frantic when those moments come. You run around like chickens with your head cut off, right? Some of you are very organized and methodical, and you've got your list, and you're one, 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 and you know, and then you be clicking it on your phone, getting out your memo pad, whatever you're doing, but you're checking down that list. So at the end of the day, you can feel like you did what? Conquered the list, because it was time. 
Okay? All of those things. And, uh, and some are very skilled at organizing and getting all that stuff to just come in almost magically at the last moment. There it is. Boom. Months of work just happens. Some of you are very skilled in, in, in sitting in that lazy boil in full recline for the entire six months. And then in the last ten minutes, boom, there it is. Or not. But, but you're good at it, right? Jesus. How does he respond to the fact that it's now time? What does he do? This is interesting to me. He's not running around like a chicken with his head cut off. He's not reduced everything to a list that has to be checked. He's not procrastinating. He's not avoiding. He's not doing any of the things that might represent all of our different personalities. What does he do? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. And they're, they're already sitting down. They you know, don't know how far into the supper that they are. But he gets up. I'm sure everybody was like, hmm, what's he up to? And it says, he rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, that's incredible. What he decides to do is to get up and to serve. He decides to get up and to show his love, to show his humility. What he did, and and a lot of us are are familiar with this, what he did was the act of a house servant and not even uh, a typical servant, like the, the lowest rung of servant. There were, there were actually some people who, would not, who, who were slaves themselves who considered themselves too good a slave to do the job of washing the feet. And yet that's how Jesus showed his love. Warren Wiersbe in his uh, commentary on this writes this about what Jesus does. The Father had put all things into the Son's hands, yet Jesus picked up a towel and a basin. His humility was not born of poverty, but riches. He was rich, yet he became poor, 2 Corinthians 8. A uh, Malay proverb says, The fuller the ear is of rice grain, the lower it bends. I have no idea what that means. No idea. I just tell you, this is just his. It is remarkable how the Gospel of John reveals the humility of our Lord, even while magnifying his deity. The Son can do nothing of himself, Jesus says in John 5. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, John 6. My doctrine is not mine, John 7. I seek not my own glory, John 8. The word which you hear isn't mine, John 14. His ultimate expression of humility was his death on the cross. Jesus was the sovereign, yet he took the place of a servant. He had all things in his hands, yet he picked up a towel. He was Lord and Master, yet he served his followers. It's well been said that humility is not thinking mainly of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself at all. True humility grows out of our relationship with the Father. If our desire is to know and to do the Father's will so that we might glorify His name, then we will experience the joy of following Christ's example and serving others. He says of us, we today, just like the disciples that night, desperately need this lesson on humility. The church is filled with a worldly spirit of competition and criticism as believers vie with one another to see who is greatest. We are growing in knowledge, but not in grace. 
Humility, he says, is the only soil in which grace takes root. Humility is the only soil in which grace takes root. Jesus showed this by His actions, by His love. I've always been uh, intrigued by the way Jesus words it when He says, that it, or when John, well, John words it about Jesus, that He did it to show the full extent of His love. I think most of us, when we think about the full extent of the love of Jesus, our mind goes to the cross because we think that is an incredible sacrifice. And I want to ask you something. I want you to seriously consider it. Which actually takes greater love to die for someone, knowing that you'll be raised again in three days, knowing that you will actually be glorified to die for someone, or to serve someone in a menial task? How many of us would be quicker at the gut-feeling level to rejoice in the privilege of dying for our son or daughter than we would to change their diaper. Men will die for their country before they change a diaper. Okay? You women know that's true. We will. We will. Send bullets our way. Throw rockets at us. We don't care. But there's a stink bomb that we are afraid of. Right? It's worse. It is way, it is way worse. That's just that's my one gross thing. But that is truth, isn't it? Some of you are probably more afraid of your grandfather's feet than you are of death itself. And probably with good reason. I don't know. I'm going to scare my grandkids with my feet. That's the way that's going to work. Jesus didn't care. It goes back to what Wiersbe was saying. True humility isn't thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking of yourself at all. It wasn't about Him. And that's the attitude that we as Christians have to take on to ourselves if we want to be like Jesus. That's where it all begins. That it's not all about us. It's not about self. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's about Christ. It's about the love of Christ for the people that need their feet washed in whatever way that may be. Whether it's literally washing someone's feet or it may be changing a diaper. It may not be a baby. Maybe a need for your parent. Humility finds a way because humility loves the person who is in need. And this is what Jesus taught us. And then he goes on and he says this. After he talks to him about, you know, has the whole thing with Peter and all of that good stuff, he then says, Do you understand what I've done for you? That's verse 12. Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. I am. So he stops and says for a second, you do recognize my authority. You understand that I am the Lord. The Greek word there is kurios. Your, your Lord and Master. It's a word sometimes substituted in the, New Testament, the Greek New Testament for Yahweh as it would have been in the Old. This is the name for Lord God. It carries with it not just the weight like, yeah, I know, Jesus is in charge. It is Jesus' is King of kings, Lord of lords, and every knee will bow at His name. He says, you call me that, and you're right. But why does he bring it up? He doesn't do it to say, I'm in charge. He does it instead to say, I, even with all of that authority, love you and serve you. 
And I show you the weight of who I am as Jesus Christ, not by pounding you with my scepter, but by serving you as a Lord, as as a Irish guy, Jim McGuigan put it in the title of his book, as the Lord of the Towel. The God of the Towel. I show you by my humility, not by my pride. I show you by humility and service, not by arrogance and Bible thumping. I show you through the love of Christ. What really is most impressive is not just what Jesus knew, but what Jesus did because of what He knew. Knowing His hour had come, He wanted to show them the full extent of His love. Two weeks ago, when we looked at Jesus at Bethany, one of the things that we looked at was the servant heart and attitude of Martha and also the opportunities Jesus was taking and how He teaches them and reminds them, you know, you won't always have me right here in the flesh with you. So take advantage of what you have while you have it. The truth is, not one of us knows the length of our life. None of us. I mean, we can do all kinds. We can do DNA tests and see, oh, you know, you're this likely to have this disease. You're this likely to live to this age. We can look back at, at our, our parents and grandparents and all that kind of stuff and say, well, you know, my grandmother lived to be 80. My, my father lived to be... Well, my father's still alive, so I've, I better not be putting any numbers on that. I'll get in trouble, won't I? But, you know, you look at those things and you kind of you guess, educated guess. Eh, maybe, that's, maybe I'll live about the same average length as all the men in my family. That sort of a thing. But we don't actually know. There are people whose genes would have had them live 92 years, but circumstances of life had them live 12. There are those who... We know a, a kid whose genes would have had him live to be only 7 years old, and he's already, good night, upper teens. Life has a way of throwing curveballs. We don't know what we have. What we do know is this. Jesus says, I am coming soon. We don't know how soon soon is. I mean, 2,000 years, we didn't call that soon. If we were in the driveway at McDonald's by then, we would have already rotted, died, and, and died with our hand on the horn, right? 2,000 years. Come on! The funny thing is, we're all too stubborn to leave the line, even 2,000 years. We would still be there honking. But it's soon. The devil knows a little bit about time. Scripture says that the devil knows his time is short. If the devil's time is short, who else's time is short? Well, when he goes down, we get to go up, right? That's the idea. When he is judged by grace, we will be resurrected and raised to a new life in eternity. So what is our time? Short. So what's the one thing that we definitely know? We only have so long. When Jesus knew that his time with the disciples was short, He used the time He had to encourage, to strengthen, and to show humility and serve them to show the full extent of His love. If you don't know how, time you, how much time you've got, but you know it's short, and that's true for everybody in the room, what do you do with that knowledge? How will you serve? Who will you love? What will you teach? What will you share? What will you encourage someone to remember? In the next few chapters, we'll see what Jesus encouraged the disciples to remember and to know. And it's, it's stuff that we need to remember and that we need to know. It's also stuff that you may need to share with somebody. 
while you have time. What we know is the hour has come. In Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, he hammers away at this idea and says, Today, if you hear His voice, and we all do, we've heard it right here in the Scripture, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the desert. And they died there because of their disobedience. Then he goes on and tells us, Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when you will follow Jesus, when you will love Jesus, when you will serve Jesus. But today is also the day, the Hebrew writer says, when you will serve one another, when you will love one another, when you will encourage one another. Because we know our time is short. None of us knows how many days we have left. That's what Jesus did when He knew. Go over to Philippians chapter 2 if you've got your Bible out. Paul writes to the church there, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, isn't there? Y'all should have agreed with that. There's no encouragement with being in Jesus. My goodness! Y'all ran out of coffee, didn't you? You should have come to my house. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I may have just slipped into another translation there, I think. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We, we've probably read that passage a million times. How often when we read where he says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We think about the cross, but only the cross. But we don't think about the line right before where he tells us in verse 6. Is that where it is? Yes. Uh, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Jesus did not show his love only in the cross. Jesus showed his love when he touched the leper. He showed his love when he turned the water to wine, which was not just a miracle, but it was Jesus working in the kitchen. You think you're too good to work in the kitchen at the wedding? Repent. The Son of God was not too good to work the kitchen at a wedding. Isn't that something? You ever thought about it like that? Jesus was serving Kool-Aid at the wedding. Something like that. Something. He was, it was not glorified Kool-Aid. It was water to wine. But He was serving. Even in that moment. It was service when He stops a widow and raised her son back to life. It was service. Do you know one of the things He did after His death and resurrection is He made breakfast for the disciples? Jesus got up and made breakfast. Do you not think that had to be some of the best fish? Or was Jesus a bad cook? He hadn't had all that much experience in eternity with having to cook. Or was that the best fish you ever could eat? Steve and I, we, we should probably find out, right? That would be one of the things when we get there, hey, Jesus, you want to fix breakfast? You know, that sort of thing. Jesus wasn't too good to fix breakfast. 
even though he's just shown after the resurrection, he's shown that he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who conquers death itself. He builds a fire while they're out fishing and he makes breakfast. That's the love of Christ. We can talk about these things in such complicated ways sometimes. It's, it's like what Richard Rogers used to call, so heavenly minded you're of no earthly good. The bottom line is, sometimes it comes down to this. If their feet stink, wash them. If they need something to drink at the wedding, go pour it for them. If they're hungry, feed them breakfast. Be a servant. Be a servant. If the Lord Himself was not fixated on His Lordship, but instead was fixated on loving those whom He could serve, why on earth would the church fall apart? Why would the church get so wrapped up in who's in charge instead of who's serving and who to serve? and how to serve people in love and spreading the grace of Christ through willing hands instead of through fists, through anger, or through arrogance. It's an incredible example he gives us. The title of all of this was uh, We Bow Down. I came, that was after the email I sent you. Otherwise, I'd have sent that song, right? That would have been a good song. Really, the song in my head was Give Me the Heart of a Servant. Um, the reason I put this is because of what it says in Philippians chapter 2. There are two opportunities in Philippians chapter 2 to bow down. There are two. One is the example of Jesus Christ where it says uh, that He, taking the, uh, the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, we all have an opportunity to serve, to do for others as Jesus has done for us. And that's an opportunity we're all to take. That's part of being a disciple. We take on His lifestyle, which means we take on a servant's heart. The other is, at the very end down here, verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him. And that's what Peter says is true for all of us, isn't it? Humble yourself and the Lord will lift you up. But, what does he also say? The Lord opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. But he says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Two groups of people will bow their knee at the resurrection. Those who looked forward to the resurrection. Those who longed for the life to come. Those who gave their lives in faith and in service will bow in worship and gratitude. The other group will bow in fear and shock that what they denied was true. And it's too late. But one way or the other, we bow. I want to challenge your, you and, and myself this morning. You don't get in the right group at the second bow unless you were of the first. Unless we empty ourselves and become servants. Forget whatever title we might want. Forget whatever title we might, may have been given. Forget whatever place in society we may think we hold. Because none of it equals King of Kings and Lord of Lords, so none of us are too good. None of us are too high and mighty. We all ride short horses compared to Him, right? The way you get to the resurrection, bowing down in worship and gratitude, is by getting on your knees first and washing feet. Not by earning it. 
Not by earning it. It's not anything that we've done. But accepting His grace is accepting His mantle of servanthood. It's taking the towel that was wrapped around His waist and wrapping it around your own and showing the love of Christ to the world around you. That's what He calls us to. That's the work He calls us to enter into. And in that humility, and in that service, we finally come to understand the full extent of God's love for us when we start to show it to other people.